Hey everyone, uh, welcome to Actual Facts, a documentary podcast. My name is Eric Stoyer, and I am here with my good, good friend and co-host, Jason Beatrew. Jason, how are you? I'm doing great, man. How are you today? I'm good. I'm excited to be sitting down talking to you for the first episode of this show. I really, really am excited about it. We've been talking about doing something like this for a minute, and uh, actually yeah. making it happen is, is quite uh, quite exciting. Yeah, I'm, I, I couldn't be uh, more excited to to try this out it's going to be a lot of fun i think yeah definitely so the idea here is that we will uh, we were both big documentary fans and thought we would uh, watch each episode a new documentary i think we'll mostly be focused on new films that come out although that may change as we decide to shift things around as we uh, as we get uh, going on the show but the idea is to do uh, to watch a new film and then talk to the filmmaker or filmmakers behind that new documentary and get some insight into uh, the story and the story of making the film and uh and yeah and then just uh jason and i share some thoughts about the movie talk about uh what we loved about it etc so pretty basic if you've heard a film podcast before i don't think you'll be overly surprised <laughs> with the format of this one uh, no. anything to anything to add there uh no no i mean that's exactly i mean like I said i i'm a big fan of documentaries i i watch a lot of them and yeah and uh this first for this first one we we were starting off with a bang we start off with a with a great film uh a film called hallelujah leonard cohen a journey a song um which the <laughs> pretty much all you need to know is in the title <laughs> yeah it's uh it's about uh, leonard cohen and specifically the the song um hallelujah and the journey that song took um over time through its uh, inception the first recording through cover versions uh through its wonderful appearance in the film shrek um and then <laughs> you know beyond yeah yeah we got a chance to talk to the filmmakers dana goldfein and dan geller the folks who uh made this movie i think it took them seven or eight years in total to put it together and it, it is really great it's, i don't think you even necessarily need to be a giant leonard cohen fan to really enjoy the film um because it's also about the way that a piece of art uh in this case the song hallelujah can kind of take on new life and uh i think that's something that that is, uh, it, it's emblematic of, of, of all kinds of ways that people uh, see and experience creativity in this in this era. Like where it doesn't need to be that just a thing is released and promoted by a record label for it to get out in front of people and, and, and have some resonance. Um, this is a, a good example of something that sort of independent of, of that system uh, took on a life, and it's it's, it's a. It's a it's a good story, and it's a, it's an, the way that they uh, intertwined that story of that song with some of the biography of Leonard Cohen was was new to me, and I do uh, know quite a bit about Leonard Cohen, and I'm a fan of the documentaries and biographies that are out about him. So, anyways, highly recommended. Um, before we talk a little bit more about the film and then segue into the conversation that we had with uh, Dana and Dan, uh, I did want to ask you just to maybe tell me a little bit about. A film that you've seen, a documentary film that you've seen, uh, can be something that is uh, a bit older, maybe from your past, or uh, something that you've even seen recently, but something that is uh, sticks in your head, like a, a documentary. I have, I have a couple, and I have one in particular that I'm going to answer with, but a, a, just a documentary that you saw at one point and you just kind of never were able to shake. Yeah. No, wow, that's a good question. Um, Thanks, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, the first thing that comes to mind um, is like, when I was in college, I took a film class and we watched um, the Spike Lee documentary Four Little Girls, uh, which I think is from 1997 and is 
about uh, in 1963 in, in Birmingham, Alabama, uh, the bombing of a church uh, which killed uh, four little girls. And, you know, I mean, it was really powerful and, and, and just devastating. And and I think, you know, what, what I really think about, what, what I think maybe it really stays with me is, is it shows the way that documentaries can give you perspective about... Uh, people and times and places that you may not otherwise have had access to information about, you know, and I guess what I'd say is that like, you know, growing up in my family and like, and where I grew up, I didn't necessarily have any kind of awareness um, about the reality of racial hatred. Um, Certainly not to that degree. You know what I mean? It's like, I was, Yeah, yeah, of course I was, you know, I was like, familiar with like, like I knew who the clan was but it was like you know in a sense they may as well have been like fictional characters uh, because you know they look kind of absurd and and they just they just look you, you know they they don't they're not a part of my real life or were never a part of my real life but so you know to see something like this in a film where where Spike Lee and he goes and he talks to the the friends and the family members of these young uh, girls that were you know robbed of their lives by just this insane hatred and senseless violence and it and it and it was just it was just an eye-opening thing that made me feel you know the impact um of that in a way that i hadn't previously felt you know yeah 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 totally i i fully get that i mean i think back to some of the first documentaries that i remember really really resonating with me on that level and they did the same thing like they tell you a story and you recognize that the story uh maybe you could have seen a blurb about it in a you know textbook or uh if you were uh, if it was contemporary you can maybe see something about in the newspaper but like a documentary film a good documentary film can really educate you about a thing that's happened but also illuminate you into something about something that is like much broader than than the story to give you an insight about how the world works you may not have had before. So I, I, um, I've somehow I've not seen Four Little Girls, even though I'm a giant uh, Spike Lee fan, and I um, especially am a Spike Lee fan from that era, and obviously this is a compelling subject that I uh, I don't know how I've missed that uh, seeing that movie, but I will go back and watch it. I, I happened to see uh, recently when I was on uh, HBO that, uh, that it is streaming on there, so I'll have to, mm. have to catch it. Yeah, yeah, I, I I highly recommend it. It's not a light watch, but it's pretty tremendous. Totally. Um, well, the movie that I will uh, mention here, something that resonated with me that I think of just for whatever reason I think of it a lot is a lighter movie it's a lighter movie for sure but it's also um, maybe relevant here because we are talking about a music documentary the movie Dig 2004 uh, it's about two bands the Dandy Warhols and the Brian Jonestown Massacre um, it's directed by Andy Timoner and uh, I it's always just the elements images things that were said in the movie little scenes vignettes they will stick out and pop in my head all the time. I don't know why. I think it's because it was really like a film that explores the relationship between artistic credibility and commerce. Danny Warhol's uh, were much more of like an MTV modern rock radio band. The Brian Jonestown Massacre were more like cold favorites, uh, for mm. lack of a better phrase. And I, I think they both wore that as a badge of honor and also were a bit resentful about their peers, the Danny Warhols being so successful. So it's sort of this movie just about the, the, the kind of rise, these two bands in tandem and the different directions that they were taking and the kind of like, uh, bitterness and, uh, and, and, and feelings that surface as a result. So for whatever reason, it's just a movie that pops into my head a lot. I always loved it. Uh, and I do yeah. recommend that as well. Um, 
I actually, uh, I, I have some, some homework for myself. I have not seen that movie. Um, and I, I, I will watch that because it, I know both of those bands. It sounds super interesting. But um, I have two questions about it. Number one, um, how much of the documentary is spent talking about the fact that both of their band names are puns about real people? <laughs> it's, uh, I don't remember it being explicitly called out, but I have a feeling that there's, <laughs> uh, there's, there's maybe some reason that parallel was made but, you know, to explore these two bands' careers. <laughs> yeah. And uh, what, what is the title Dig in reference to? Gosh, I don't remember. It's, uh, I don't remember. I don't remember. Okay. Oh, oh, I was just curious about that, but yeah. I will, I will watch it and perhaps I will find out. <laughs> you can report, please report back. So the next time I talk about this and I'm asked the most rudimentary of questions about it, I have I actually have some information to share. Uh, all right. Well, so back to uh, hallelujah, Leonard Cohen, a journey, a song. We'll talk a little bit about it before we get into the interview. Um, obviously it is about Leonard Cohen. And like we said at the top, it is about uh, the story of Cohen to some degree through the lens of one of his most famous songs. Uh, but more than that, it's not like a, um, as, as I think uh, in an interview that I read with uh, with Goldfine and Geller, or maybe they even said this to us, I forget the phrase, they said it's not a cradle-to-grave biography. It definitely is not that. It's not like a documentary about the life of Leonard Cohen. Lots of that is interwoven in there, but there's also you know many uh, kind of eras of, 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 of Cohen that are not deeply explored. It's just a, you know, it's not a... Um, it's not that movie. It's a movie right. that is uh, it's telling uh, a part of the story of Leonard Cohen, and it is tell- talking about the, sto- the, the story of the song Hallelujah, which, which as, um, as, as folks may know, is uh, a song that was released in uh, 84 on the album Various Positions. And uh, his record label, Columbia, they just they rejected the album altogether, yeah. and it was uh, ultimately released on a smaller label in the U.S. And... Um, the album was not a hit, song was not a hit, but over time, Hallelujah has become almost like this uh, you know, standard, this global standard that everyone sings, and uh, there's just dozens and dozens of very famous cover versions of it. It's, it's sung at um, all sorts of major events, and it, you know, it's yeah. something that you will hear at weddings. It's, just, it's become yeah. a song that was like a complete, uh, not, not that songs are always measured by whether they are commercial successes by any stretch, but it was a, it was a bomb when it came out, and over, t- <laughs> over time, it's definitely become you know, Leonard Cohen's most sort of, sort of signature song. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah. What else would you say about it? Yeah. Well, well, the the movie I think uh, was at least is somewhat inspired by that. There's a book uh, that that came out. Alan Alan Light wrote a book, uh, The Holy and the Broken. Um, Leonard Cohen, Jeff Buckley, and the Unlikely Ascent of Hallelujah, which is once again uh, is about exactly what it sounds like. Um, is have you read that book? I did. It's been a minute, but I did read it. I have it on my bookshelf. Nice. Yeah, and uh, I have not read the book, but I, after watching the documentary, I'm kind of inspired to, to go back and read it and, and see what more there is to learn about the song and, and the trajectory it took. But it, it's, it's interesting. I, I, I assumed that you'd read the book because um, I, you know, it's worth saying, like, I, you know, I've known you for a very long time, and I've always known you to be a, uh, a Leonard Cohen guy, like you're a big fan. And uh, in fact, when I first met, yeah, when I first met you, you had a, you had a sweet cat named Leonard even, right? It's true. I uh, I knew you were going to say that, and I started to tear up just a tiny bit. Uh, good old Len. I, his full name, his real name was Leonard, but we called him Len. But he, yeah, he was named after Leonard Cohen. Good, good boy. He was a sweetie. Yeah, um, I, I met I met Len a few times, and he was definitely, definitely a sweet cat. And <laughs> yeah. um, what what was uh, like? What was your uh, introduction to Leonard Cohen? Yeah. So you know. Um, 
I'll be honest with you. It was the movie Pump Up the Volume. <laughs> really? Yeah. Um, Christian Slater, you know, if you've seen that movie or even if you just know a little bit about it, you know that he's like a high school kid operating a pirate radio station and uh, telling the kids the real truth uh, mm. about, about, about the world and uh, also dropping <laughs> some, some the real deal music on him. Uh, and yes, if I remember correctly, the opening song to his show was uh, was Everybody Knows by Leonard Cohen. And so that's obviously... 20-ish years uh, in into the, uh, the the repertoire of, of Leonard Cohen by the time those 80s songs came out. But that's that you know I was I was a teenager, so that's that's when I first came across Leonard Cohen. I was just completely taken by the sound of his voice and by like the fact that you could tell that it was like an older guy singing, but in this style that was um, you know kind of kind of like had this synth, but uh, but but like a, a totally just different sound. I was mean, just one of those songs where uh, when you're a kid, there's songs you hear for the first time, you just know like that this is my music. I love this stuff. So that's that's what happened there. Then I will just say about the uh, the the pump of the volume soundtrack, the Leonard Cohen version is not on that. It is the concrete blonde cover of it, which also appears in the movie. But that is my first. That was the first time I heard Leonard Cohen, and and so so really the first time that I I, I got uh, aware of of just the, the kind of catalog of, of music that he'd made was through the '80s stuff. Like I uh, went out and got that album later like on cassette it's uh uh the the 80s stuff is really where i started and then from there um i you know uh, my late teens by the time i discovered that he'd been a novelist and a poet and had you know decades worth of music before the time that i'd uh heard heard him so that's uh that was how i got into it retrospectively retroactively through that through that 80s music nice um yeah, I uh, I actually think I was thinking about this, and and I I think it's possible that I really got my my first real um, uh, introduction to Leonard Cohen th- through you, like through recommendations you made. Like I can't remember for sure, but like the song "Everybody Knows," it feels like it may have been the first thing I've heard, and and I have this memory that like I I can't. I, I was thinking about this, and like, do you know like was "Everybody Knows" ever used as like the theme song for a show on HBO or something like that. Like, hmm. I don't know if it just has that vibe, but there's a, something in my mind that tells me it was... Well, it was used for the theme song for Christian Slater's fake uh, pirate radio show on the, <laughs> the movie Pump of the Volume. There was all sorts of uh, good tunes in that movie, as I recall. Yeah, so I remember hearing, and I remember, you know, I think he was somebody that I was aware of, and then, uh, then yeah, I, I'm sure I, I started just listening to his songs through him, and I think for the first time I actually listened to full albums and was like, you know, holy crap, this guy uh, could could write a tune, and uh, and you know, it's just one of the, you know, obviously it goes without saying, say uh, that the one of the most, you know, wonderful lyricists that's ever tried to put pen to paper as they say but um but yeah uh the and and you were and, and we were talking about this like you 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 were able to see him in concert right toward like like what we see in this documentary is that like toward the end of his life he had this uh series of uh, of uh, he did a few world tours uh and they were you know widely celebrated and hugely successful and i think we, we both got a chance to see him on that tour yeah i saw him in march 2013 with aaron and my friend glenn at the oakland uh paramount which i, I think is um uh is is it is it correct that it's like it's that, that's one of the shows that Dana and Dan kind of first 
connected with the possibility of doing this film. Does that sound right? Yeah, I think that I think that is a hundred percent right. I think they yeah. said that they went to a show at the Oakland Paramount and they were so floored by it, like as you know, I was too, um, that it was the beginning or like the seed of the inspiration that would you know later lead to this film which is really inspiring you know inspiring to think of that the way that that art you know can go on and inspire you to create other art you know yeah obviously. totally but um but yeah i went <laughs> one funny story i <laughs> i went to see him i think it was in november 2012 in la and uh and a funny story i remember about that is that i actually went to that show i ended up going with somebody who i didn't know very well um uh, a young lady who was a, a friend of a friend and um and we went and, you know, and the, the, the concert was amazing. And, and I, we talk about this with, with uh, Dan and Dana. But, you know, there was just some kind of transcendent experience happening. There was so much love being given and received. And Leonard was so full of light and, and graciousness. And I was just, like, just transfixed and having this, uh, you know, amazing experience. Uh, you know, one of the more memorable lives. Absolutely. I mean, just an amazing, I mean, the same same uh, tour that, you, that, that I saw. Just amazing. Like, completely yeah. crazy how good he was yeah and you know and so i'm basically having you know a semi-religious experience and then, so that he comes out and, and you know he plays an encore and then i think he goes skipping off stage and <laughs> then it's apparent like there's going to be a second encore and at that point in time this person i was with who again i didn't know very well who I, i'll go ahead and say i gave a free ticket to <laughs> <laughs> for this show decided she it was time to go time to go and Grab it, i gotta beat the traffic yeah and i was you know i just being the way i am i i i you know i i should have just been like oh you know i'd rather i prefer to stay through the whole thing it would have been very simple to do that but instead i acquiesced and uh and i remember like walking out of like the concert hall into the lobby and hearing the band kick up and and, and famous blue raincoat starting up <laughs> and being like i want to crawl in a hole and die i'm so mad at myself right now but uh yeah yes but you did get home earlier than everyone else that night <laughs> yeah no i it, it is true that i otherwise that's those 11 minutes of my life that I wouldn't have uh, had otherwise. Uh, LA so. traffic, man. You don't, you never know what it always pays to get out a little bit early. Uh, so. what, are we going to be stuck there in the parking lot trying to leave for upwards of seven minutes? Like this is like, <laughs> uh, so that's, it's the funny story. But well, here's a question for you. Like, uh, this this uh, film, it's it's uh, they we they go in depth a lot about a lot of the different cover versions of um, Hallelujah, and I wanted to ask you, like, if you had to or not had to, but if you um, were able to record, you make music, we make music. Yeah. If if you were able to record a a cover version of any Leonard Cohen song, like, what do you what do you think you might choose? I'd have to uh, really investigate the lyrics on whatever choice I would make to make sure there's nothing in there that I actually uh, would find myself <laughs> being embarrassed to, to sing. Um, yeah, so. <laughs> you do have you do have children. Yeah. That's right. I, I'm and also just a, a shy guy, very bashful sometimes. Um, Me but too. I, I, you know, I, I will say, I'll say that um, I will say that uh, that that maybe waiting for the miracle. Actually, like I've listened to that mm. uh, recently also, and and again, those were like you know some of the first songs that I remember just really loving. It's like I love it. I've listened to those um, those those '80s albums a couple times recently, and they just um, they don't sound like anything else. And those are some of the songs that I, I I kind of find that I connect to the most. Although I will say, you know, I will definitely take a a famous Blue Raincoat cover and and and, uh, and do something fun with it. That's what that would be really neat. Yeah, absolutely. I. 
I mean, it's hard to go wrong, <laughs> but like, uh, uh, yeah, it's, I mean, I, my feelings exactly about what you said about having to look at the lyrics. Cause I mean, one of my absolute favorites is, is Chelsea hotel, yeah, but that's I, the one I, I had in mind for sure. I, I, I don't think I could sing some of those lines. Yeah. A little tough. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I do love, like, I, I, I really, I mean, it's, you know, a, maybe a, populist choice but i really love tower of song yeah. uh, just the, the melody and the singing of it actually actually i have a, a song uh i i wrote or is mostly written that i've had been kicking around for years and i and i realized after a long long time that the melody is basically verbatim <laughs> like lifted <laughs> from, from tower of song maybe it's not the most like original song melodically that's not the point of it yeah but that's uh, i mean but i but i love that song like you know that the the uh, hank williams line that kills me every time and mm-hmm. anyway it's, it's great stuff but uh but yeah like we both really enjoyed uh watching this movie uh watching this film uh what what do you what's something that you took away from it I think just that that the theme of it is very powerful to me, which is that something that you put out there into the world that you've really labored over, because that's a theme with Hallelujah, is that it's um, something he spent just forever cranking away at, and that there's all these verses that he's written that uh, we'll never really see the light of day. Uh, but but it was just you know labored over and labored over and then it and then it um it kind of came out and nothing happened with it and people didn't love it and then over time it took on this life like that where it's a it's a it's a it's a massive uh song that that essentially stands as like one of the signature um pieces of art that is commonly loved uh, across the globe you know it's it's, it's yeah. that big it's like it's like it's one of those songs now uh, yeah. So I love I love that aspect of it, and, and hearing the the path that it took to get there, and uh, his feelings and um, about about uh, about his music kind of gaining notoriety and and uh, connecting with people through the interpretations that other artists did. I, I loved all that stuff. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more, and I and I feel like that's a great note to segue into our conversation uh, with these filmmakers on. So I think we should. Uh, Go ahead and, and move on into our conversation with Dan Geller and Dana Goldfein. So maybe if you could talk a little bit about Cohen's transition from poet and novelist to singer-songwriter and uh, what you learned that uh, about him that inspired him to go in that direction. He would joke sometimes that he could not make money as a poet in Canada, that a best-selling book would sell 12 copies and that music seemed a a better route. And there's some truth to that with Leonard. Usually there are layers and layers. Um, But I also think he saw that uh, he had always played music. He had a little band as a kid, a bunch of boys, the Buckskin Boys. And that music, certainly in the mid-60s, music was so powerful a form in addressing the world that because he wanted to, as he says in that interview with Adrian Clarkson, lay his hand on something. And and then he realized ultimately that he was very good about laying his hand on that. Um, It it made sense that he could make that transition from from poet to um, songwriter. And then uh, reluctantly at first after that to singer. Yeah, I mean, I think his poems, Really, I don't know how much difference there is between his songs and his poems. I mean, clearly there's a difference between a poem and a song, but I think it wasn't that 
far reach for him to go from um, being an incredibly respected young poet uh, to to writing song lyrics and then putting them to music. Yeah, I, uh, that that actually segues nicely into what I was going to ask. And in in, uh, in one of the interviews you use, uh, Cohen says that he feels the borders have faded between the different creative endeavors, meaning he didn't think that an artist needed to identify as just a writer or a guitarist or a painter. How do you feel like that attitude he had helped guide his work after that point? That's kind of what I think Dan was getting at when he talked about, you know, putting your hand, whatever your hand falls on, if you if you're if you're good at it, it doesn't really matter whether it's specifically defined as poetry or prose or writing songs. Um, and I love that. I mean, I think even today there's this sense that um, an artist, whatever their initial medium is, is kind of shoehorned into that medium for the rest of their life. And, and I feel like it was. Um, I feel like it was almost futuristic in Leonard um, to say that back in the in the late '60s, um, you know, to be dealing with these issues of well, what is an artist and how does an artist fit into one or more categories? I, I love that he said the borders were, were were fading. You know, he had these amazing long-term creative relationships with women, starting with Judy Collins and later Jennifer Warrens, Sharon Robinson. Um, what did you learn about the, the the way he worked with collaborators and sort of how much that ended up becoming a part of his, um, his output? I think it keeps people fresh. I think about songwriting partnerships that they tend to be the ones that produce the most work and those partnerships can shift over time. Uh, but I think he he found people who could work with his really tricky, deep lyrics um, and not smother them the way that Phil Spector did in Death of the Ladies Man, but honor them. Uh, and I think he, he clearly knew what he wanted musically, but he, he also liked to introduce that element of someone else's uh, musical mind into the work. And I think it kept the work evolving as, as far as production, because you really can hear uh, it, in many ways, a lot of different uh, musical styles evolve over all those albums. It wasn't like he just, you know, you know, landed and then kept making the same kind of song over and over, but putting aside the lyrics that were never the same. He never, he didn't even do that musically. He kept uh, engaging with people who could feed him um, and collaborate that but way. I also think that he really knew almost from the beginning as a as a singer, a songwriter, he knew how well his particular voice meshed with the, the woman, the woman's voice. Mm -hmm. He always had these terrific women back backup singers and he gave them um, a lot to do. Uh, you know, we were talking earlier about we all went to see Leonard Cohen um, when he was in his final, you know, five year victory lap tour around the world. and. The backup singers, it was, you know, not just Sharon, but it was the Webb sisters. Um, they did a lot. And the way that their voices blended so beautifully with Leonard's was something that he understood from the very beginning. Um, he just understood the value of a woman's voice and the way that it could fold in with his. In terms of uh, collaborating with partners, um, we also see that he keeps going back to the same people. Uh, whether it's John Lissauer, uh, even though he has 
a bit of a break um, to to do the notorious Phil Spector album. But he comes back to John and um, and he came back to John again later on when he was working on a collaboration with Anjani, um, his partner in the later part of his life. They did an album together called Blue Alert. Um, you know, he did many albums with Sharon and they started collaborating on the very first tour in 1979 when they were on the Field Commander Cohen tour and Sharon with some trepidation said, hey, do you wanna, do you wanna hear a melody um, that I've been playing around with? And he immediately grokked on to the power of her ability to write a melody and they sat down and, and um, came up with their first song in 1979. And then of course, all the way in the early 2000s, they're doing whole albums together. So I think, I think, he was a very collaborative person, not so much in terms of writing the lyrics. No, not at all. But I think in terms of um, coming up with melodies, the production of albums, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think uh, it's Liz Hour that explicitly says, I just didn't ask him about his lyrics. Right, right. It's like, I wouldn't either. <laughs> um, you know, jumping back to his early life uh, in, in the doc, one of the things you cover is that uh, his father died when he was only nine years old. And um, I and I can't stop thinking about the story about the note and his father's tie. Like, would, would one of you mind telling that story for our listeners real quick? Yeah, it's a really beautiful story. Um, and it's something that he talked about. He told that story a few times. So we 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 know that it was something that was on the back of his mind and maybe the forefront of his mind for his whole life. But he talked about how when his father died and, and he was quite a young boy, he was nine years old, the way that he dealt with that um, was this unbelievably beautiful uh, choice that he made. He, he wrote some words, which he actually calls perhaps his first sacramental prose. And um, it was a note to his father, a little poem. And he took his father's, one of his father's ties and slid it open and, and put into that split open tie, um, this little message that he had written, his sacramental message to his father upon his father's death. And he buried it in the garden. It's just so beautiful. It is beautiful. And, it, and it's really, it's a pretty incredible thing for a nine-year-old to do. <laughs> And and uh, what I was thinking is like, you know, obviously later in life, uh, you know, Coney, he very much embraced the role of a spiritual person. But what do you think that story says um, about a sort of natural attunement he had to ritual or spirituality from an early age? Some of it, I think, came from family. His father or rather grandfather was a rabbi at the key synagogue in Montreal. Uh, I think he had uncles who went to shul all the time. Leonard grew up in that environment. It was steeped in the word and also in cantorial song. And I think that that's part of it. But then I think he, well, a couple of things. I think he, his father had been sick for a long time. Um, and I think that does something to a young child. You um, had that kind of worry and concern and stress into what may be just a, a, a predilection for introspection that some kids just have. Uh, and it kind of cooks into this piece where you get something like uh, a nine-year-old mourning his father in such a, a, a 
exquisite way. You mentioned the work that went into the lyrics and how they would sometimes take years. And especially in the case of Hallelujah itself, it was many, 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 many verses that were not uh, ultimately recorded. Uh, when you hear a perfect song, something that usually just clocks in at a few minutes, it sounds like it must have just come to the songwriter fully formed. Uh, but he really labored over his songs, sometimes taking, like I said, years and years to get them into shape. Um, can you talk about anything you learned from his, uh, his, his struggle with getting together the perfect pop song? I think it, as he says in the film, again, so eloquently, um, if I knew where the good songs come from, I would go there more often. I think that he did sit down every single day with his journal. He had 400, I think, journals by the end of his life. Uh, and as he would also say, he blackened a lot of pages. And you see, I mean, one of the things that Dan and I were so fortunate in being able to see was, you know, the the journey that a single song like Hallelujah would take from, say, the first Hallelujah notebook. It's not, he never called them his Hallelujah notebooks, but we've, we've called these five notebooks his Hallelujah notebooks. Um, you know, in the, in the late 70s, he starts and you start to see the genesis of that song and you see him um, trying to go one way with it and then the other way and he writes a line he even in the film he reads the same line with small modifications three or four different times i think that just the care that he used in picking every word and making it perfect and trying different words and trying different phrases and then putting them in different orders was pretty unique and there was a comparison in the film of course because to bob dylan uh, because, of course, they had a long time um, friendship, professional admiration, and maybe even some professional rivalry in terms of where they were at in the game and how long it might have taken each of them to write their songs. There's a moment we put early in the film deliberately in the scene where Ratso and Leonard are in a cafe talking. And it, it's what kicks off the first section of the film where we then say birth of a songwriter. And Razzo says something that's so provocative and, and, and on the border of insulting, but provocative. And it's because Leonard and Razzo had known each other for a lot of years, even by the point of that interview, which happened in the early 90s. When Razzo says, do you think many other people take this much care with a pop tune? And it's coming back to your use of that word pop um and and leonard just looks at him <laughs> because the other part of this is even though leonard was on a major label um he wasn't releasing pop tunes i mean it, it, it just none of the lyrics it remotely suggest a pop tune um and that that gets interesting because it suggests a different way of, of writing, a different way of thinking, a different way of understanding how lyrics participate in a song than almost anybody else at that time doing anything remotely in the realm of something that might wind up on a radio station somewhere. And then I guess, would we really refer to Hallelujah as a pop tune? Um, I mean, I kind of smiled when I, I first heard that interview and, and heard Ratzo refer to uh, to the song as a pop tune. I feel like it's become something that's much bigger than a pop tune. I mean, it's almost like a hymn or an, you know, an international prayer that's pulled out 
at significant moments at, in various places in the in the world. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, and it definitely was not that when it when it came out. Right? I mean, its stature really grew over the years. Um, did you get a sense for how he felt about the way that the love for that song or maybe his other music too grew over time and through other other artists interpreting them? He talked many times about how touched he was when he discovered another artist um, doing his work, appreciating what he had done enough to want to put out their own cover version. So I think he was touched. I really do. You know, there's that infamous line, and again, it's in the film where Leonard says, um, you know, maybe people should stop singing Hallelujah for a little while. And I tend to side with Ratso Sloman, who says, you know, come on, he was kidding. You know, like it was Leonard being um, a little bit of a provocateur, a little bit humble um, mm -hmm. because he's he's being confronted on the part of the interviewer with this notion of, oh my God, hallelujah is everywhere. Look at this amazing success. So I think it, it was one way of sort of, you know, looking bashfully down and saying, um, oh, but maybe people should stop singing it for a little while. But really, I believe he was extraordinarily pleased when other artists covered his work. That's good because that certainly didn't happen that people stopped singing. <laughs> it's uh... <laughs> So I just have to say, after watching the film, I was uh, very pleasantly surprised that somehow I wasn't tired of hearing the song Hallelujah. <laughs> and uh, on the one hand, I mean, this is obviously a testament to the greatness of the song, right? I, I just think it just wouldn't be possible with most songs. Uh, you know, in the film, we hear nine seconds of, uh, uh, I'll just say, a, a different song from the Shrek soundtrack. And uh, and that is plenty of that one. <laughs> uh, was it tricky to find that balance between showing enough of the performances and, you know, not potentially driving the viewer crazy? Yes. Uh, and, and it took a lot of work to balance that out. But we I think the, some things that informed the choices of what you hear as, as far as Hallelujah. One is that the artists that we chose to have uh, let their covers run longer, let's say, were artists who had something very special to say about their relationship to the song. So it, it helps you know, almost, it helps the viewer see the song, hear the song and receive it in a different way. When you hear Brandi Carlisle talk about, for her, it was uh, a way to, in some ways, um, square the differences between being a, a, a very religious young woman and being gay. Um, so bringing these different people in at different times and their relationship to the song helps um, define the song um, further each time it shows up. But the other thing is that it, it's amazing to watch Leonard change the song along the way. The original four verse song that he recorded on various positions later becomes a five verse song with four of the original verses tossed out that he begins to sing on the road. And then you watch him again by the time he gets to those final tours and he's mixing and matching secular and, and religious versions, if you want to use that shorthand, how to name them. So even Leonard singing it multiple times, it seems like the song uh, it comes out fresh. So that that's my my take of, I think we hit the balance pretty well. I, I also think, and I, I've said this in interviews before, that it's an amazingly generous song so that uh, whatever the artist who's covering it, um, wherever they're coming from, uh, that song is so rich and it allows 
that particular artist's version to sound different from any other artist's version. Um, so I kept wondering, you know, it's, it's been, it was an eight year process from the time we thought of the idea to the time that the film premiered in Venice, um, or maybe it was a seven, was it seven years by that time? Whatever, it was a long process. I kept thinking I'm, I, or questioning myself and saying, are you gonna get tired of it? And I do think it's the only song in the world that has enough uh, richness in its words, the different verses, and then that beautiful, beautiful melody, which I don't know, I never get tired of. Mm. And, and, you know, the very end of the film, you get to hear Kitty Lang singing it. Um, and that comes after, not that far after we've had a long uh, sequence where Leonard sings it all over the world. And I would hazard that an audience would feel like they were almost two different songs, the Kitty Lang version, and then that incredible Leonard montage uh, from later in his life. Yeah, that that uh, the Katie Lang one does a Katie Lang song a version does stand alone. I think it's an amazing thing. It's it's really you know clear from your film like the major role that uh, the song Hallelujah played uh, both in uh, Cohen's spiritual life and his artistic life. And uh, maybe it's it's too easy, uh, too early to answer this question, but do you two feel aware of the role that making this film about the song has played in your own journeys as artists or in your spiritual lives? To listen to Leonard Cohen talk in all these interviews that we had from 1966 onward, to listen to Leonard talk every day, uh, it, it has an impact. <laughs> Because he he was dealing with weighty issues, clearly. He was dealing with doubt. So when doubt is introduced rather than certainty, there's a lot more room to stay engaged with a subject. Um, and he was funny. Uh, a lot, he had a very dry sense of humor. So making the journey across those years, listening to Leonard day in, day out, um, begins to rub off on you. And specifically how... I'm not sure I can say yet. Sometimes that happens well after we're done with a movie and I begin to look back two, three years later and think, wow, you know, what really has um, stuck with me? But I feel like the privilege of spending all that time with him, um, it has gotten in deep and it's sort of gone through my, my blood system and it remains. You know, I think the, what I walked away, I walked into this project thinking, you know, oh my God, Leonard Cohen, the God, uh, you know, he's so deep and spiritual and brilliant and he's an incredible artist. And I walked out and this is what I will take with me. I walked out thinking what an incredible human being. He was not a God, he was a man. And he was a man who had his ups and downs and, you know, foibles and, happinesses and sadnesses. And multi, multi, most of all, he was a man who worked really hard on himself every day of his life. And that's a great challenge to, I think, um, anyone who thinks about Leonard Cohen. And, and for me as a filmmaker and a human being, spending eight years with him, um, it, it, it made me want to work harder on myself. There is that line at the end of the movie, which really does stick with me when he says you look out and there you cannot make sense of this world it's impenetrable you can either raise your fist or say hallelujah 
he goes on to say, I, I try to do both. And that sticks with me because we're dealing with a very troubled world right now. Um, and yet there's so much potential and beauty in the world at the same time. And I feel like they, that stance can help, help get one through uh, and stay engaged without becoming defeatist, and, but also enjoy without being Pollyannish. Well, Dana and Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Can you let folks know where they can see the film and learn more about it and your work? Sure. So uh, Hallelujah is playing in theaters now, and it will be through at least the end of August. Basically, and there's a, a Facebook page where we try to keep it updated um, in terms of the new openings and where it's still playing. Uh, eventually, it'll come out on a streaming but see it on a but, big screen but, yeah. it's so much more impactful exactly especially with that great music and yeah. that just envelops you excellent thank you so much thank you both thank you All right. So, yeah, that was um, a conversation with Dana Goldfine and Dan Geller, the filmmakers behind Hallelujah, Leonard Cohen, A Journey, a song, a film that we both love very much. I enjoyed talking to them and hearing uh, about their path towards making the movie and, um, you know, a little bit more just about their insights into Leonard Cohen and the song Hallelujah. I'm sure, like, as you are someone making a film for years and years and years, you create a relationship with the subject person, even if you never actually met them or worked with them, uh, Dana and Dan didn't get to interview Leonard Cohen, but they had all this footage and time to think about him. And I'm sure that, uh, you know, that, that was what was cool to me talking to them about that, glean some of their insight that they, uh, that they, that they developed from that experience of, of sitting so long with Cohen. Yeah, totally. I mean, I think Dan said in the in the interview that like you know just spending that much time listening to Leonard Cohen talk like has an effect on you on some deep level, which really makes sense. I mean, there's basically nobody who I would rather uh, listen to uh, speak. I mean, he's so you know eloquent and and, and interesting. And uh, I actually like I wrote down like a. What one quote I want to share in a little segment we'll call things Leonard Cohen says, <laughs> uh, but, uh, it's like toward the end of the movie, he's talking, I think it was at a point where he, he was much older and he was, he is ill. Um, and he was talking, he was using, you know, the analogy of the third act of, of your life. And he said the, the beginning of the third act of his life started out great with this very successful tour and everything. And then he goes on to say this. <laughs> But the end of the third act, of course, when the hero dies, that, generally speaking, from what one can observe, can be rather tricky. <laughs> it's like a perfect joke. Like, yes, a, exactly. That's that's a very uh, a good example of, of his humor, for sure. Like, very wry. Very, yeah. very, very wry guy. Tricky. Uh, tricky. <laughs> tricky. It's a good, good word. Yeah. Well, man... Uh, I really enjoyed putting this uh, first episode together with you. I'm looking forward to our next one. We've already got a couple uh, interviews down and recorded, so that's exciting. So we have some good stuff coming and already in the works and uh, some plans also for some uh, episodes in the next few months that are going to be pretty big and exciting too. So really looking forward to it. Glad we're kicking this off with such a, uh, a subject that we're both so interested in and we hold near and dear. Totally, totally. Yeah, I can't wait to, to do another one. Thanks, everyone, for listening to this uh, inaugural episode of Actual Facts, a documentary podcast. And until next time, Eric, uh, we did our best. It wasn't much. <laughs> <laughs>